Gingerbutt, what are you doing? Gingerbutt. You come here. You come here and be a baby. Piggy, be on the podcast. What do you, what do you have to say about Mummy on the Orient Express? Thank you all for being here <laughs> Thank today. Thank you for being here today. <laughs> What's good, fam? This is the Queer Archive, a queer and feminist Doctor Who podcast. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Brenna. And this week, we're talking about the mummy on the Orient Express. The dramatic pause is what I almost forgot. But I remembered. And this is your reminder that we are a very spoilery podcast. So let's pull to open and talk about our initial thoughts. Okay, so first thoughts. This is one of my favorite episodes of Series 8. Same. It's not in my top 10 necessarily, but it's it's close. No, it's not in my top 10, but I do enjoy this one. Like, I look forward to watching it. The beginning, one of my favorites, when he's trying to sell this trip to Clara. There have been many trains, blah, 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 blah. I don't know the full line. There have been many trains that have taken the name of the Orient Express, but, but only, only one, one in, in space. space. Exactly, that's the one. Twelve is a stunt queen. We'll see more of that later when it comes. He gets worse when he gets the velvet coat. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I really enjoy Frank Skinner as Perkins. Yeah. I always hoped that they were going to bring him back for like a one-off episode for like a Christmas companion or whatever. But I think he's really fun and does a good job at this. He's super likable. He is. Perkins. Chief engineer. The doctor. He has so many good lines. He does. <laughs> yes, sir. Nice to meet you, Doctor. I'm obviously the mummy. <laughs> or I've already been looking into this. <laughs> he I, plays with the Doctor so yeah. much. It's great. And I also think his delivery when the Doctor invites him to join, mm. like his face when he's like, no, I don't think I do know anybody, is very, very yeah. good. It's almost a, I'm good, Martha Jones moment, which I stand. Yeah. I saw him at Galley a couple years ago, and he talked about how he is a humongous Whovian, and how when he read in the script that Perkins says no, he was heartbroken. And he asked, like he said, he begged the director, can we just do one take where I say yes, just for me? That is, oh my God, (laughs) so cute. Yeah. I feel that. I feel like the rest of this is just like rapid fire random thoughts. We have so many random thoughts. So I'll go and then you go and then I'll go until we're out. Get it. The Jelly Baby cigarette case was Capaldi's idea. Super cute. It is. You know what I find really rude? What? It's a fucking travesty that the soundtrack doesn't include Fox's vocal on this cover. Yeah, I think Foxes is one of, like, three people who's legally allowed to cover a Queen song, so (laughs) the least they could do is give us this. It, like, made the song what it is. Why is Maisie Pitt wearing a dress and gloves and a robe that are the same color as her skin and hair? I know it's to make her look, like, sallow and sad, but why? It's a choice. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, the sarcophagus opens. Clara's line, oh, it's just bubble wrap. (laughs) Clara, don't trust bubble wrap, don't you know? Oh, wait. Wrong episode. Too soon, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> well, don't stop us now. Let's make like a shooting star and fly over to the High Council of Gallifrey. Mm-hmm. 
Let's talk about folks in power positions in the world of Who production. Okay. Jamie Matheson. Wrote this episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we're going to do the rest of this podcast. (laughs) Just just going to say half a sentence each. Half a sentence. You're going to finish it. It's going to be great. And so forth. (laughs) Yeah. Jamie Matheson wrote this episode. He also writes the next one, Flatline, which is in my top ten. Hey. And Oxygen. So good. And The Girl Who Died. But that episode doesn't exist to me, so. Nope. I, I don't recall it. So he was... He, actually, Jamie Matheson's very helpful and has a writer's blog. So if you're into that sort of thing, you can just look up his blog and read his notes. But on his notes, on his blog for this episode, he said the only thing that Stephen Moffat gave him was the title, Mummy on the Orient Express. Nice. Yeah. So he said, of course, I was inspired by Agatha Christie. So it is a, a locked room murder mystery. What's the TV equivalent to that where the whole episode takes place in the same location. A fishbowl episode? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And he said that the other thing Moffat told him was that it would be a Clara Light episode. So then he... It's actually a really interesting blog, again, if you're into that sort of thing. He talks about the sort of phases that the plot went through. So there used to be... Like, at one point, there was a moment where there were, like, 24 tolds. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <shit. laughs> and there was a, a point in the plot development when you got on the train to see the seven wonders of the universe but they had to cut that out for time it was just it's really interesting to read but i do think as a writing device the opener of start the clock with the ticking sound is an interesting bit of world building because we already know that it's going to be on a timer there's lots of pressure and that it comes in really big fits and bursts and it actually establishes the foretold's like spooky qualities really quick so the first couple of minutes does a good job of like establishing here's the universe here are the limitations go so i think this is a pretty tight script yeah i would agree and then it's directed by Paul Wilmshurst. Again, that's the guy who just directed the last episode, which was what? Kill the Moon? Kill the Moon. Anyways, <laughs> I think Paul Wilmshurst makes some really solid choices here. And I think he has very good composition, like shot composition here. So a couple of things that I really enjoy is when Morehouse sees the mummy and the doctor is in the shot, but he's like out of focus. That's when Morehouse, is it Morehouse or is it Quell? One of them says it's fuzzy, like it's not quite in focus yet. And there's a shot from his perspective where you can see the mummy and that it's almost, it actually is kind of like a fishbowl lens actually, where the doctor's <laughs> present in the shot, but he looks sort of weird and bowed out. Um, and then I also think the shot of the mummy when Maisie first sees it and it's in the blue lighting and it just raises its hand really slowly. Yeah. I think that's good. So I'm enjoying Paul's work here. Yeah. You know what I think is spooky? What? The evils of capitalism. Oh, I bet I know where we can talk about that. So now we're in the Black Archive, the segment with all the dangerous, forbidden, and powerful stuff. Let's talk about race, class, sexuality, gender, bodies, etc., etc. You got any thoughts? Yes. At one point, Gus says something about... If you don't do what I say, then the less valuable passengers will be killed until you cooperate. Right. And I feel like this episode is trying to make a commentary about capitalism and classism, but there's actually not enough in the episode for it to be clear that the show thinks Gus is wrong. Yeah, they just kind of like 
leave it there. Yeah. Make your own like, deductions, but we're not going to really pick that story back up. Yeah, like the show is showing, huh? The show is demonstrating that it thinks Gus is wrong for killing people willy-nilly. Yep. But it's never, it never circles back around to saying, hey, people are not inherently more or less valuable. People are, are people and they should all be treated with dignity and respect. In fact, I would say this, it implicitly agrees. Of how he's like, oh, less valuable passengers and then everyone's like nodding their head yeah yeah you know who you're talking about yep and also the the doctor says if i got a minute with the foretold then this would be done and over with it wouldn't be i'm the most valuable person Uh here i mean the doctor is constantly making comments like that the time lord race is more evolved than the human race yeah etc etc where is the fully automated luxury gay space communism i was promised where's that drain okay well that's actually in star trek (laughs) do we need to go to star trek I mean, if that's your thing. I think this episode is also building on some of the things that we talked about for Robots of Sherwood. Where there's a quote where the doctor says, I know a lot about mythology because from time to time it turns out to be true. (laughs) And 12 really thinks of religion and superstition as interchangeable. When Morehouse is dying, he says, don't focus on your superstition. Tell me what you can see with your eyes, because what is tangible is what matters to the doctor. Give me your data. Data, data, data. Yeah, for sure. So this episode is placing, these are the, this is English nerdy garbage. Tell me. But there was a, it was very in vogue in the like 30s to 50s, archetypal analysis, which is where you look at the archetypes present. And actually, you use that a lot in media studies still so like the arc of the hero the femme fatale Mm, all of that those are archetypes so it came from this school of thought that looked at like the set figures actually this episode uses one of the things that an archetypal analyst would talk about which is the ticking clock you have a pressure every 66 Mm. seconds but this episode is taking the mythos which is myth like myths and myth building and then logos which is logic facts and putting them in opposition to one another but they're actually often entwined, intertwined. And this, the legend of the foretold is actually literally bound up in actual true information about the mummy, which proves to be crucial in its eventual defeat. So I can't tell if eventually the show is trying to say that the doctor is wrong for not believing in stories or if it's just got its head so far up its own ass that it doesn't know what it's doing. The second one. Because <laughs> the doctor doesn't show any sign of taking a lesson from that no. series of events at all. Absolutely no. Not. Yeah, and it's super interesting that the episode actually reinforces that idea because the doctor this whole time has been viewing all the superstition, all of the myth and impulse to say the right word or offer the right thing to the mummy is wrong. Yeah. But then in the end, how he, quote-unquote, defeats or solves the mystery is by doing exactly that. Yeah. He says the right <laughs> word. He gives the mummy The phrase it needs, yeah. We surrender. <laughs> and and so, then you're relieved. Yeah, and so it's just like, oh, these things are pretty much the same. We just kind of translate them into a more myth-like form or a more data science-based form. Yeah. And the doctor just prefers over and over the science-coded one versus anything that resembles anything religious or myth-based or, um, like you were saying, in Robots of Sherwood, they pit story and history against each other when really they're the same thing in slightly different forms. Yeah, which is in opposition to Eleven, who is obsessed with, like, fairy tales and stories. And 
that's one cool thing about Eleven is that Eleven really valued story Stories. and storytelling. Yep. Yeah. Any anything else in the Black Archive? I feel weird. <laughs> thank about, you for sharing. <laughs> thank you about what this episode is suggesting about mental illness. Mm, tell me more. Because people with PTSD and trauma are quote unquote weak and need to be eliminated according to the foretold. Yep. And again, just like the classist capitalist quote unquote commentary we were just talking about, I don't think the episode ever course corrects away from that. No. Nah. Not really. <laughs> I think it just is like, yeah, those things are bad and those people are, are weak because of it. And that's uh, some bullshit, I'm going to go ahead and say. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, unnecessary. I think they're trying to go for like, oh, you thought it was just physical illness, something that you can kind of detect just all the old people, right? Yeah. But we're going to throw a wrench in it. Anyone with weakness, which is, you know, mental illness. I feel like that's some neurotypical ableist bullshit. Yeah. Nothing new in Doctor Who. Who? No more rhymes now, I mean it! Anybody want to feel it? As long as it rhymes, everything will be fine. What's wrong to doubt you? Well, what about the Bechtel and DuVernay tests? Ooh. You know what? This episode passes the Bechtel test. It straight up does. They have a conversation. <laughs> There's your slow clap. Woo! Yeah. What a low bar. You stepped right over it. Yeah, they talk for like two seconds about Maisie's gran. A generous reading would be like half the conversation is about Maisie's gran, which is cool. And then the other half is about the doctor. doctor. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that they name it. They're like, hey, you know this trope when two women are stuck in a room together and all they end up talking about is some man. Boys, boys, boys. Boys, boys, boys. We like boys in cars. Boys, boys, boys. Buy us drinks and bars. Boys, boys, boys. They name it and then proceed to critique it and move away to a different conversation that's more interesting. Oh, wait, no. No. <laughs> they proceed to talk about the doctor yeah. more and more. More, more, more forever. More, more, more forever. Boys. But other than that, I feel like it was really refreshing to see Clara or just a woman companion speak with another woman character. And it made me realize how rare that is yeah. when it was happening. I was like, oh, yeah, this is nice. This is yeah. rare. Shouldn't be rare, but I that enjoyed it. Partially due to the absolute paucity of named women characters in yeah, this show. Yeah. Of course. Speaking of that scene, I think there is a reading that is totally available here that I see. Uh, <laughs> Clara kind of vibing with Maisie. Yeah. Uh, it could be due to Clara's kind of magnetism. It could be due to, you know, there's like low light and they're sitting on a bench together and mm. they're just having a really intimate conversation and it doesn't have to be read like that, but there is an opportunity to read it like that. Like, there's a lot of lingering gazes. <laughs> Even at one point, Maisie's, like, gazing at Clara, and she's like, if only we liked the people we were supposed to like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to throw that out there. Yes. This is, ugh, students hate when I do this, but this is one of those things where it's like, the text is receptive to that reading. Yep. So no readings are wrong. Just some readings are more... The text is more open to that reading than There's others. more evidence for one. Yeah, yeah, this is... I mean, if you 
out there in the world, you need permission to be given to you. You should feel like a god among men because you, the reader, make all the meaning. So if you're reading this text and you're like, they're gay. Yeah, I think the text is totally receptive to that reading. And obviously we're here for it. I think the funny thing is, is that Clara's, maybe not often, but she is cited as like a bisexual character yeah. in the Hooniverse. And this is the personally the only time I actually see it. Because every other time it's stated as, like, I went through a phase. Remember or, when I kissed Jane Austen? I just kissed Jane Austen. But other than that, she reads hella straight to yeah, me. Yeah, same. Um, but in this moment, I was like, oh, no, they're vibing. I I buy it. I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> even though, like, I don't ship Clara with anyone, I freaking love her being her ship badass Ship Clara alone. with herself. That's the one. Anything else? Uh, I don't think for Bechtel, for DuVernay, does Danny Pink showing up for, like... Three lines of dialogue nope. count. No, nope, it doesn't. I'm just going to stop you right there. <laughs> Although there are, I, I feel like there's more POC background actors in this episode than in other episodes. Yeah, more than I remember, too. Yeah. But, I mean, that means pretty much nothing because, again, they're not named. And also, they disappear when the hologram Ooh. gets turned off. <laughs> That's, like, the worst there's part like of it. There's, like, literally two people of color left in the car train there's a woman of color off. which is rad yes and she's a scientist but i know that because she's wearing a lab coat good reading <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so basically when they're like hologram people right they're like yeah. illusions yes of like filler characters and then they figure it out and they're like hey turn off the simulation gus let's get to work so many people of color just start disappearing they are literally objects in the scenery they're the not scientists. They're the not researchers. So, uh, no, it doesn't pass the DuVernay test. There's not enough luxury gay space communism in this black archive for me. Let's get out of here and head into the heart of the TARDIS instead. Good call. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Ganymede User System Space Tours. Specializing in atmospheric vehicles and themed escape rooms, Gus's acclaimed tours afford visitors with incredible views and thrilling activities. Why not join the hundreds of people who come from all over the galaxy to unwillingly participate? Buy a ticket to one of Gus's train rides and see the seven wonders of the universe. This is the heart of the TARDIS, where we talk about feels and supposed morals of the episode. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> What's your sigh? This episode is sad because it's talking, I think it's exploring how painful a friend breakup can be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I feel so sad watching the sad smile scene where yeah. 12 is like, it's very confusing because you're smiling, but you're also sad. It doesn't make sense. And then there's the shot of the <laughs> two of them. They're not looking at each other, but they both look like so upset. And then also the the cheers to the last hurrah scene where Clara's like, but I'm so good to see you. And he's like, oh, really? I thought you didn't want to see me ever again. Like, it's just, it's a very sad episode to me. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, friend breakups are no joke. Yeah. Friend breakups can be, I think, worse than romantic breakups in some cases. Especially Absolutely. something like yeah. this where it's like your best friend, your closest friend yeah. who knows you so, so well, maybe the best out of anybody in the whole universe, and you're deciding that you can no longer be friends. 
Yeah, and as a viewer, it's such a bummer to be like, no, I like you guys together. Yeah, I love their chemistry. Yeah. And I think they need each other. They have taught each other a lot, and they balance each other out so well. And I'm like, you still have so much to learn together. Yeah. Anyways. And you can see that, too, later on in the episode. It's at the very end when they wake up on the beach and Clara asks the doctor, so you're just pretending to be heartless. And after the doctor says, would that make it easier for you? He says, Sometimes the only choices you have are bad ones. But you still have to choose. So I think this obviously tees up Clara's arc for the rest of the season quite nicely, but that it's also doing a fairly solid job of destabilizing Clara's really binary sense of right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Because she's like, sometimes things are right and sometimes things are wrong. Clara, you sweet Gryffindor bitch. Sometimes <laughs> doing the right thing means doing some shady shit. And that's the doctors telling her, it's not like I like doing this, but you still have to do it. And so I'm, I was willing to do, I was willing to watch somebody die. And then I would have just moved on to the next one and the next one and the next one until I figured a way to win. Yep. When we talk about Clara in Into the Dalek having like the only Ethical system that makes any sense. goddamn sense. Yeah. Yeah. Does that contradict our idea of saying like she has a binary sense of right and wrong? No, because I think, I don't think they contradict necessarily we're wrong. I think that it's a contradiction born within Clara because in Into the Dalek, she's saying mm -hmm. people aren't wholly good or wholly bad. Right. They're a mix. And we did not just learn that people, like a Dalek can never be good. That's not what we learned, yeah. which is why the doctor is using her as his measuring stick because he doesn't know how to make decisions yet. But here, and this is like the Gryffindor thing, it's not that there is a objective set truth. It's that Gryffindors have an internalized sense of what is right and what is wrong. And that that's what their gut is, what their intuition is, what they use to navigate the world. And so Clara's gut sense is that being dishonest is wrong. A lie is wrong. And the doctor is telling her, sometimes you have to lie in order to do the right thing. And that doesn't chalk up to how she views right and wrong. She thinks that's bad. Yeah, that's fair. I agree with all that. I think Clara is a very human person with like well, yeah. a full bundle of contradictions and nuances that she yeah. has not yet confronted and she yeah. does not confront here <laughs> she's like well i guess i'll just keep traveling with you <laughs> and you're like well yeah okay don't inspect that that sounds good i think that her decision should still end in the same result traveling with the doctor yeah but how she gets there is extremely no internal thought gryffindor better be gryffindor so, also, I think this ends on a weird-ass note. Tell me. Because this is the beginning of the narrative that Clara has an addiction to the life with the doctor, and she can't tell Danny because it's bad. Yeah. Boo. Boo! Boo! Rubbish! Filth! Slime! Muck! Boo! Boo! Which the show, in some ways, honestly, confirms this narrative in the next episode with the doctor scolding her for her behavior and all that. Yeah. And with the revelation in next season that Missy has been orchestrating their partnership to be the hybrid yeah. this whole time, right? 
So I don't agree with that. I don't yeah. agree with the season and the show framing Clara's time with the doctor as an addiction. I don't agree with their partnership as a, this dangerous thing, but we can totally talk yeah. more about that I was going to say, comes. we will talk about that next season because I think season nine basically disproves that claim. And then it's like, mm. and that's why it's bad. And you're like, oh, what? That came out of... That is the opposite no conclusion of what you've been drawing. <laughs> Anyway, okay. <laughs> no, I think they're really good together. I think honestly, this is this is where it loses me. Yeah, this, the end of this episode, because why does Clara have to feel bad about traveling with the doctor again? Yeah, this should honestly have been, if anything, just a sign that oh, maybe Danny and I we're not on the same page. Oh, right, and we don't have anything in common. Oh, right. Boom, boy, bye, foo. Moving on. Moving swiftly along. Boom, boy, bye, foo. <laughs> Let's just skip the whole rest of that story arc. <laughs> Which is why I send Clara's addiction narrative to a crack in time and space this week. Mm. Along with all future plot sequences of Clara and Danny's romantic relationship together. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> no, honestly, because this is, in my opinion, where their relationship should have just ended. Yeah, I agree. If you are withholding a huge part mm -hmm. of your life from your partner or you're keeping your partner from your friends, your relationship is not long for this world. Mm-hmm. Bye, Ronimo. <laughs> Bitch. Shall we talk about our three favorite moments? Yes. Go. I like the jelly babies in the cigarette case, and I like that it was Peter Capaldi's idea. It's so cute. <laughs> I love Capaldi's monologue in his private cabin. Yeah. <laughs> He's just going back and forth, yeah. doing percentages. Yeah. Well, that was a very significant drop-off. <laughs> I also quite like his delivery of, Oh, well, there's a shocker. After Gus says, like, survivors are no longer needed. Could have predicted that. Yeah. It's not his first rodeo. <laughs> well, I think that's it for this week. We've mummied. We're ready to go. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Queer Archive. Wait. Pod. Four favorite moments this week. Oh. The Are You My Mummy callback. <laughs> I'm the doctor and I will be your victim this evening. Are you my mummy? That is a good one. Anyways, proceed. Okay. I think, I think now that's about it for this week. We've, we've mummied. We're ready to go. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Queer Archive Pod. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your feels. Tweet at us. Send us a message. And remember, if you have some time, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Until next time. Be gay. Murder someone fabulously on a train in space in the name of fully automated luxury gay space communism. Yeah. Tune on your speakers and please be my doctor, whoever. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yes, sir. Yeah.